morning, everyone. My name is Jordan. I'm the staff elder to students here. It's going to be my joy to uh, bring you the word this morning. So um, it was about this time last year uh, that a group of men and I who get together for a book club, uh, who get to read books that uh, we have never read and learned to appreciate, definitely ones I never would have appreciated in high school, and uh, last summer, uh, I thought it would be a fun idea to read a great classic novel called The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, uh, something they forced us to read in high school that I just did not appreciate at the time. Um, and time, Tom Sawyer is an iconic uh, uh, character in our culture. If you go to Disneyland, they still got Tom Sawyer's Island, all sorts of things. But uh, as I was thinking about uh, Tom's, uh, the sermon, I couldn't help but think about Tom Sawyer. And the thing is that endears us uh, to Tom is just what a, the, the high school boys are going to love this, uh, what a cheeky boy he is, what uh, a rebel he is, a scoundrel in some ways, but you are endeared to him. Uh, he just wreaks havoc for all the adults in the community uh, and does all sorts of things, but you just have this sense of endearment toward him towards him. One of the most uh, famous scenes in the book, and one of my favorite scenes, is his aunt who's raising him because his parents passed away, uh, has told him to paint the fence uh, in the yard as a chore. Um, and Tom goes out there, and one of the older boys who's cooler and uh, sm not smarter, cooler than him and older than him, uh, has asked him, what are you doing? What are you doing painting the fence? And he's like, he convinces this boy that actually painting the fence is a really, really fun activity. And so he convinces this kid to start painting the fence for him. And since the other kids in the neighborhood see the cool kid, the big kid painting the fence, he starts getting the other kids to pay him trinkets in order for the honor to paint his fence. Uh, at which afterward he goes to his aunt's way early and he says, I'm done. And she walks out there and she thinks he painted it. And she's just like, oh my gosh, this boy is such a hard worker. How amazing. And meanwhile, he's just in the back corner counting his marbles and all the things he got from these other kids painting the fence. And it's one of those moments that you're just like, this kid, I love him. He's so witty and so smart. And in that moment, you're like, even if the ant doesn't know, like, I just love him. And the reality is, when you read through Tom Sawyer, Tom is somebody who is of mixed character. If you were his parent, you would go crazy. You would pull your hair out too, just like his aunt did. And not everything Tom does is really nice and kind, and sometimes he's actually pretty violent and pretty mean. But the thing about Tom is we, we can appreciate him, I think not only because we identify with him, but... There's redeeming qualities that you see in him, very specific things that you say, that's awesome. And perhaps when Tom is an adult, that wittiness, that intelligence will be used for such great good in his life. And I couldn't help but think of that because we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 today. And Jesus is going to tell a story about a very similar character. A character in a lot of ways that is not to be... Uh, emulated, not to be an example, but there's very specific characteristic about him that Jesus wants to tell in his story that as Christians, we should emulate. And actually, the character in the story, I think, is even worse than Tom Sawyer. He's essentially a thief. 
And so today's sermon is called Lessons from a Thief. Christians have something to learn from a thief today. Jesus taught that we have something to learn from a thief. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. And really it's going to provide you with four lessons relating to money so that your money will actually benefit you in eternity. Some of you know this as the parable of the dishonest manager, the parable of the shrewd manager. And to be fair to Luke, we're just jumping right into his gospel. He has a story to tell. He's telling a story through the narrative. So so to give you some context, really what you have to understand in the gospel of Luke is about chapter 10, somewhere into the chapters of the 20s, there's this constant back and forth between opposition and Jesus' ministry from very religious people called the Pharisees, and then him teaching his disciples essentially how not to do things like them, how not to be a self-righteous person, and in fact that God will reject people who are self-righteous. And so even just before this chapter, in chapter 15, uh, it begins sort of this section with, in the first few verses, that the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, everyone's coming to Jesus and the Pharisees are grumbling that he receives them. He's a receiver of sinners. And so all the way from chapter 15, 3 to 32, and even into our chapter, what you have to understand is chapter 15 and 16 is really an indictment of the Pharisees. It's an argument against their self-righteousness for the most part and showing his disciples how not to live like that. And so you have the parable of the lost sheep and he says, look, God goes looking after the one that goes astray and that shepherd, he rejoices when he finds it. You have the parable of the lost coin of the woman who celebrates and he said, God celebrates in heaven even when one sinner repents. And so he's telling the Pharisees, look, those who will enter the kingdom of God are not the self-righteous, they're not the really religious, but they're actually the repentance, the ones who recognize that they're sinners. And then you have the parable of the prodigal son, which is certainly about the prodigal son and his uh, Christ as the figure represented by the father of receiving sinners. But really, the parable of the prodigal son ends with the older brother. And really, it was to show that the Pharisees were like that older brother. They did not like that Jesus was accepting sinners to him. And so really, it's a parable to say, How does that story really end? It ends really with that son crucifying the father as the Pharisees crucified Christ as a result of his ministry. And then we get into chapter 16 and we have our our parable today, which he's going to teach. He turns to his disciples for a moment and says, these people, these Pharisees, they love money. Let me teach you how you should think about money. And then he proceeds to condemn them for their breaking of the law. And he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus that says, Look, it's not the rich in this life who are wealthy, who will have the great things and the life to come as any sort of guarantee. And in fact, that they may suffer as a result of not believing on the resurrected Christ. And so let's read our actual passage and then we'll break it down for you. We'll break it down together. It says this in chapter 16 in God's word. He also said to to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him And this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking my management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. 
So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, how will it, how will or who will entrust to you true the true riches and if you have not been faithful in what is another's who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money and money and the pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him and, they, and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's pray. God, I pray that you help me to unfold this text faithfully today, Lord. I pray that you help us to not just be hearers, but doers of your word, Lord. There's certainly a temptation um, to see ourselves better than we ought to at times, Lord. But we too can be like the Pharisees, lovers of money. Sometimes it's subtle in our life. And I pray that you would free us from that. I pray that you would help us to see what a horrible master money is and what a wonderful master you are and that we would spend our money in a way that would benefit us, but your kingdom ultimately in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, today we're going to learn four lessons, really, that Jesus pulls from this parable that he gives of this thief of how to use our money to benefit us in eternity. And if you like outlines, that's going to be the outline today. And those are sort of the four lessons. Deal shrewdly, secure your f- future, get truly rich, and choose the right boss. And so let's start with deal shrewdly. We'll deal with the parable first. But notice it says, And Jesus turned to his disciples. So far, he's been talking to the Pharisees, and he says, now I need to take an aside, and I need to teach you something about how not to be essentially like these Pharisees. And he tells this parable. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. It would not have been uncommon in that day for someone of of great wealth to have people who were managing their accounts, going to see clients. Uh, clients collecting bills, and this rich man had one such person. And it says he gets word, and in such a way it's, it's worded that the, the reports are believed about what's happening, and this guy's wasting his money. And it's not that he's actually probably stealing money and wasting it, but it's actually he's even spending it immorally. The word wasting here is the same thing that Jesus says in the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, just a few verses earlier in 1530, when the older son says about his younger brother, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. That he devoured, he wasted his father's inheritance. And so the idea 
is this guy has a reputation of not only stealing from his boss, but then going and living a very lavish and immoral lifestyle, which is not the kind of employee that you want to have working for you. And it says, and he called him and he said to them, what is this I hear about you? I hear something about you and I, I know it's true. I believe it. Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And he says, you're going to get fired, buddy. Get the books together. Give them to me. I'm going to look them over. You're going to get fired at this point. And then we get an insight a soliloquy into that manager's thought process. And it says, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking my management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, which is just a way of expressing in that culture, like I can't do physical labor. I'm not strong enough for that. I've been working a white collar job. I can't do it. And he's too proud. I'm ashamed to beg that, and just like in our culture, it would have been a shameful thing to beg for money, even maybe even more so in Jesus' day. And in verse 4, he really has an epiphany. And he says, I have decided what to do. And in the Greek, it's emphatic. It's like it gets to him. He's like, I know what I'm going to do. I know how I'm going I'm to work this out. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. I'll know how I'll make it. So when I'm fired, people will actually owe me something so that I'll still have money. I'll still have a place to live. I'll still have a place to go. And so he summons his master's debtor one by one, and he says, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And to give you some idea, uh, in those days, they use a currency called denarii. One denarii, if you were an average worker, about a day is how much you would make. And the amount that these two debtors owed were probably about 500 denarii. So two years worth of salary is what he ends up taking off their bill. So he says, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take off the... Uh, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. And when you sit down, write down what you owe, and I'll sign off on it. Because I'm about to get fired, and I want you to owe me something. And if I take two years' salary off your bill, you will like that, that you will owe me something. So he does it. And he says to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat, which is about the amount of wheat that like 100 acres would grow about. So it was not an insignificant amount. And he says, write down 80. And again, he saves this guy. About two years worth of money. And then the surprise hits, really, in verse 8. That Jesus commends, essentially, the villain in this story for something particular. And he says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And notice, he doesn't commend him for his dishonesty. He's not happy this guy is stealing from him. But he's like, that was clever. That was smart, well done. And I, I couldn't help but think of this. Do you ever have someone who breaks the rules, even if you made the rules, so creatively that you're like, I'm not even mad. <laughs> that's, that's just impressive. I think that's how the manager feels. Uh, we certainly know this with our son. Uh, a recent fun story is uh, our daughter, who's a baby, Autumn, uh, she's a really distracted eater. So we got to separate her from the older brother and everyone so she could just kind of eat. Because otherwise she wants to look at everything, touch everything. So we often, Hannah goes in our bedroom, locks the door, uh, leaves Isaiah outside with the toys. And he plays for a little bit while Autumn's feeding. Well, uh, recently, Hannah's in there. She, she locks the door, she's feeding Autumn. And she hears the door tussling. And all of a sudden the door springs wide open. 
And my son stands there in victory with a fork in his hand and says, Mom, I opened the door. My son, without ever seeing us ever do this, went into the door. And you know on the outside of your inside doors, there's sort of like a slit or thing you could put a paper clip through or you could put an object through that if you accidentally lock yourself out of the room, you can open it. And he figured out all on his own to go in the kitchen. This kid is three years old. Grab a fork, stick it in there, and open the door. And Hannah was the same thing. Like, I'm not even mad. That was amazing. That's impressive. Can't be mad at him for it. And I think that's how the master felt about this guy. Just, well done. Well done. You took my money, but that was very, very shrewd of you. And then comes the end of the parable, and, and Luke, or Jesus, makes this comment. And he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Which is really the way of expressing that the people of this world are more crafty, more wise, give more insight, are more creative into dealing with this world and securing their future than a lot of Christians are. Christians being the sons of light. They give more forethought to it. And in one sense, that I mean, makes a lot of sense because as Christians, we're looking to the world to come. And yes, we live in this life and it's significant, but we're thinking of the world to come. And so in some ways, we just don't hold on to this world the same way that a non-Christian does. This is all there is for them, probably. The nice retirement, all that, that's all that they'll ever have and look forward to. And so they will pour their effort into securing that future. And they will think creatively, they will think exhaustively of how do I secure that future. But as for Christians, we know there's, there's going to be a life after this. And so there's a sense in which we could be a little bit aloof from the world. And I think that's what Jesus is alluding to. And so he says, the sons of this world are more shrewd, more wise. They look for opportunities to secure their future. And I think one commentator captured it really well. And I think I put it on the, the slide here. He says, Jesus is saying that God's children who have a heavenly future should be as diligent in assessing the long-term effect of their actions as those who do not know God are in protecting their earthly well-being. Christians should apply themselves to honor and serve God in their actions as much as secular people apply themselves to obtain protection and prosperity from money and the world. And so Jesus is exhorting his followers, us, his disciples, to be shrewd, to be wise with the way that we actually use our, our possessions and our wealth. And he has a very particular idea in mind of how we should do that. And why it's certainly being applied to money here, I just want to point out that applies to everything. Jesus elsewhere tells his disciples, I want you to be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. That as Christians, you should look for opportunities to preach the gospel to people, to minister to people as much as a thief thinks about opportunities to steal. And as Christians, we can think about all of our life like that, that whatever resources that God has given us, our abilities, our intelligence, whatever it may be, that we are as slick as a thief to do good for the gospel's sake. 
But Jesus is, I think, specifically applying it to resources here. And so the point is that he's, he's going to point out in verse 9 and 10 that he wants people to secure their future and their true future. And I get, when I was thinking about this as well, I'm sort of, it's not a guilty pleasure. It's just something I enjoy. But uh, I love heist movies. I love where people plan out and plot everything to steal something. And I don't know if this is a guy thing. Girls, you can tell me later if girls ever do this. But guys have uh, imaginations of things, scenarios we like to imagine. And I think almost every guy has thought of, well, if I committed this crime or if I stole this thing, I'm not saying I ever would. How would I do that better? Like, how would I think about doing this thing? And I think Jesus is saying in the same way, he wants his disciples to start thinking like that. As creative as someone is in thinking of that heist and the sophistication that goes into it. How could I think about my money and my resources that way? And in fact, he points out to them that it will actually benefit you to do that. And so he says in verse 9, And I tell you, this is a command to his disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And when he says unrighteous wealth there, I don't think Jesus means money that was gained dishonestly or wrongly. He's just referring to this idea that we live in a world system and the world system isn't uh, necessarily clean. It's what we work within. And the, and the wealth we have isn't even really ours. That everything we have belongs to God. And so he's saying your worldly wealth, the, the wealth that you have in this life, whatever it is that you have, make for yourselves friends by means of unrighteous wealth. Just like this dishonest manager indebted people to him in the way that he gave them a discount of money. Use your money to indebt people to you for the gospel's sake. So Jesus is telling his disciples, secure your future, not your earthly future, secure your eternal future. And he says, look, the money's going to fail. You're going to run out of money in this life, or you might get to the end and maybe have some left, and guess what? It's going to someone else. You can't take it with you. And so it's going to fail. So you might as well use it in a way that will benefit you into eternity. And Jesus commands his disciples to do this. If you want to make much of Jesus... Think about the way that you use your money. Do you think of your money that it is best spent for people to come to know Christ to that end? That Christ is worth so much that you are willing to invest your dollars, the things that you earn, into the mission, into the great commission of people coming to a knowledge of the truth. And there's a lot of ways that you could do that. And when it comes to the end of your life and the accounts of re are rendered, how did you spend your time? How did you spend the money that you earned? What is it going to be read in heaven that you did with your money? That you're giving funded an outreach ministry that reached your neighbors with the gospel. That you're giving supported a missionary that brought a gospel to a people who would not heard it otherwise. That you're giving supplied the first Bible to someone from whom they learned salvation. That your giving sent a student to camp where they've heard the gospel and proclaimed for the first time. I'm personally a result of that. 
People in this congregation sent me to a camp at which I became to believe the gospel. That your giving provided for a preacher to study and preach the word of God to thousands of people who would not heard it otherwise. That your giving went towards supporting an organization that was about training faithful men to preach the gospel around the world. That your giving went to established churches where there's no churches that exist to proclaim the gospel. Jesus says, you want to secure your eternal future? Do that. And when you get into heaven, who will be there that will say, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for your sacrificial giving that you gave. And as a result of that, I received my first Bible, that I heard the gospel for the first time, that a whole indigenous tribe in the middle of nowhere who have never heard of Jesus says, as a result of you sending your missionary and supporting that missionary, my whole tribe became saved. And now we're here rejoicing with Christ. Will they not welcome you into heaven? He's here. She's here. The person who sent them. The person who paid the bill. We're so excited that you're here. God told us what you did. And so who will welcome you into heaven as a result of the way that you spent your money? And for those of you who are members of this church, it goes for us as a church as well. When we have those meetings and you see that budget up there, do you think, who will welcome the members of Christ Community Church and say, thank God for the way that Christ Community Church spent their money in my community. Thank God for them. So Jesus says, secure your future. But there's another lesson to be learned, and Jesus says, really, to get true riches. This is what he says in verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? I think Jesus here in a sense is correcting, look, be like the manager in his shrewdness, but don't be like him in his dishonesty. And that if you're actually dishonest in little, you will be dishonest in much. And this is a principle that we know in life, that if you're one way in a small area of life, it's probably going to carry over to the bigger ways. It's certainly something that uh, some of you have heard this book. You can bring it up there, uh, Marley, to the next slide. Uh, keep going. That's the bank vault. Keep going. Marley's doing my slides, so don't blame her. I'm horrible at clicking slides, so I asked her to do it for me. But in uh, Make Your Bed, Admiral William McRaven, who's a former Navy SEAL, wrote this book that essentially says, start the world by making your bed. And he understood that a small discipline and character would lead to a larger. And this is a quote from the preface of his book when he's talking about when he was in the military and they were told to make their bed every morning. And his drill sergeant comes and he says, swinging around to face me, the drill instructor looked at me in the eye and nodded. He never said a word. Making my bed correctly was not going to be an opportunity for praise. It was expected of me. It was my first task of the day. And doing it right was important. And it demonstrated my discipline. It showed me my, atten my attention to detail. And at the end of the day, it would be a reminder that I had done something well. Something to be proud of, no matter how small the task. 
That was a man that understood that faithfulness in something small could lead to faithfulness in something great. I already saw people when I pulled this up, like all the people who make the bed turn to the other people like, see, this is why we should make the bed. I don't think his point is necessarily that every single person has to make the bed, but whatever it is in your life that's a small thing, be faithful in that thing. And so he understood that a small discipline leads to a larger discipline. And Jesus applies that same principle here, that honesty in a little is honesty in much. And so God's concern for you, because even as I was thinking about this sermon, I was talking to someone yesterday, and I said I'd anonymously bring this up. I know some people were probably already thinking, well, this sermon's great, but guess what, Jordan? I don't have any money, so (laughs) that all sounds great about giving and all these things. But the truth is that God's concern is primarily your faithfulness with money. Primarily your faithfulness with money. Do you steward? Do you manage whatever God has given you? And it's the same with your ability. Some people are more just naturally talented than others. Some are given more than others. Some work more than others. And so, yes, some disciples will do more with their money than others. But God's concern is that you are faithful with whatever you have. No matter how little, whether you live in obscure poverty or whether you have a vast amount of riches, that God is primarily concerned with faithfulness. And here Jesus says, look, that faithfulness will be rewarded with true riches, that there is a life to come, an age to come, where we will actually live on a new earth. By the way, heaven's not the final destination for Christians. New earth is very physical existence. And he says, look, there's a new age coming, and that you will actually be rewarded if if you're faithful in this life. And so God's concern is primarily with faithfulness. And the truth is, when it comes to money, I think we just lie to ourselves a lot of the time. By the way, Marla, you can click to the next slide. I think I just have a, yeah, on there. But we kind of lie to ourselves about money, and I think this is sometimes how it goes, is that we tell ourselves we'll do something differently when we have more of it. The truth is, money will only ever make you more of what you already are. If you're a selfish jerk and you're broke, when you're rich, you will still be a selfish jerk, but you will just have lots of money. If you're a generous giver when you're broke, you will be a generous giver when you are rich. And so we have to really put ourselves in the mindset of realizing our character is going to remain the same regardless of what money we have. And we always say things like, well, money changes people. People fight over money. Some of you are probably involved in that, the will, all of these things. And the truth is that the money that's there, it just drew out something that was already in the person. All that greed, all that anger, all that entitlement, that was in there. It just never had the opportunity to be drawn out by a large enough sum of money, to be honest. But now it's being drawn out. And the same thing when we're frustrated, when we have anxiety about money. Maybe you didn't think you were anxious, but then something happened in your life, and now you're anxious about money. That anxiety was in your heart already. But now the circumstances have drawn it out. And God, a lot of times, does that to us graciously to teach us to rely on him, to love him, to seek first the kingdom of God rather than seeking after more and more money. And so so Jesus says, look, get true riches. Use your money, be faithful with your money in this life that God will actually entrust you with things in the new life. And ultimately, whatever money that you have, even if you worked for it, this parable alludes to the fact that we're managers for God. God owns everything. 
Even if you worked hard for it, who caused you to be born? Who caused you to have the abilities that you have? Who created the people who taught you and formed you and allowed you to become the person that you are and successful and whatever it may be? That everything ultimately comes to the Lord and you really just manage it for him. And he says, look, be faithful in what you manage and you will be rewarded with something greater. How can you be trusted with eternal wealth, the riches of the next life, if you can't be trusted with this? And a surprising amount of obedience, this is something I had to touch on, because I just think it's so clear in this passage. In the New Testament that Jesus teaches, he actually teaches us as Christians to be motivated by reward. Look at some passages with me. Marley, you can click to the next one. It says, The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. You'll share in the reward, reward of the people you receive. And whoever gives one of these little ones, talking about believers, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Go ahead to the next one too. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And one more, Marley. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Talking about the final day of judgment. This is Paul speaking about a judgment that's coming for Christians. Not a judgment of salvation, but a discernment of how we spent our life. Because it will be revealed by fire. That what we have done will be, by Christians will be tested. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will see, receive a reward. And after this passage, Paul says, even if he loses, he realizes he's wasted some of his work, he will still be saved. So it's not a judgment of salvation. But it's fascinating as Christians that we don't typically think in those categories. And even Paul the Apostle says he refrains from doing some things because he doesn't want to lose his reward. And so despite what Christians uh, sometimes believe, it actually talks about that in eternity, both in punishment in hell and that in heaven, that there's differing levels of rewards and punishment. Different severities and different rewards. And that's something we should look forward to. And what those rewards will be, I think it differ. My wife is asking me about it. Like, so, like, what do we actually get in, like, the new life? And there could be a lot of things. We're going to live on a new earth. And we will turn back to Christ and bless Christ with whatever we have. But I think there will some people that it will be evident. He tells the apostles, look, you'll sit with me on 12 thrones and you'll judge the tribe of Israel. You'll have an authority that not everyone has for what you gave up and followed me. And so it could be a lot of things in the new earth. But it's not wrong, I don't think, for a Christian to be motivated out of service for Christ and say, I would love to be rewarded by my gracious master. By the way, God doesn't have to give rewards. It's all grace. Because no one is ultimately righteous. No one is good. It's out of pure grace that God says, I will reward you for your faithfulness. But there's a last point, And it's really to choose the right boss. Going to be a gang. Going to be a mob. Going to steal like a thief. You want to have the right boss. 
hopefully, someone who's kind, someone who cares about you, someone who loves you. And this is what Jesus has to say in verses 13 through 15. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say you shouldn't serve money. He says you cannot serve money. You cannot be my disciple if money is ultimately your master. A quote that stuck with me that I think is a great one from Dave Ramsey And he says, look, money is a wonderful tool and a horrible master. Money is a wonderful tool and a horrible master. Jesus is saying, look, you can only be devoted to one. And if you're going to be devoted to money, not only will God detest that, but you will have probably a miserable existence, not in this life, certainly in the next Jesus very vividly encaptures that in the next parable, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man got his good things in this life. Lazarus got licked by the sores and the dog. He got his sores licked by the dogs and lived in poverty. But then he's sitting by Abraham's side. And so money will, is a horrible master. And sometimes I think we feel like... <laughs> As I think about this verse, I told somebody, you know, I've never uh, heard anyone tell me this is their life verse, but for some of us, we'd probably love it. Ecclesiastes 10, 19, bread is made for laughter and wine for wine gladdens life and money answers everything. <laughs> so what King Solomon was saying, look, money does solve a lot of problems and it gives you laughter. It gives you fun. It gives you food. It gives you wine to drink. It fills your house. Proverbs says, look, nobody likes to be friends with a poor man, rich man. You got a lot of friends. People want to hang out with you. Poor people are needy. They're always asking you something. Rich people, they're usually throwing parties. You're coming over. You're hanging out. The truth is, it's a horrible master. And he moves on, and the Pharisees are listening to this in verse 14. And he says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They literally, they turned up their noses at him like, ha, Look at this guy. Don't you know that God gives us money because we're right, because we're righteous, because we're good? Why would God bless us with all this wealth if we weren't getting it right? Isn't that the truth, that God helps those who help themselves? Look at us. And so they loved money. But I think the temptation for us as we read a a passage like this and we see the Pharisees throughout the Bible is we think, oh, like, those religious elites, these rich people, like, yeah, get them, Jesus. Like, tell them what's what. They're snobby. They're selfish. But the truth is, many of those times, I think those things are in there in the gospel, not only to show opposition to Jesus' ministry, but to help us see the self-righteousness in our own hearts. For us to see that we, the way that we love money, the way that we are like a Pharisee. And so there's the temptation to villainize the Pharisee rather than to see the Pharisee that exists in our own hearts when it comes to the love of money. And the problem with the love of money, when we hear that phrase, you know, we think of like Scrooge McDuck, that there's some guy, he's got his vault, and he's swimming through the gold coins, and he never gives anyone anything. We're like, yeah, bad rich guy, or like selfish rich guy. But our love of money comes in much more subtle ways than we first think. Some of the ways I thought of, think about Are you jealous of those that have more than you? 
Do you repeatedly think of if only scenarios in your mind in your life? If only I made this salary, if only I drove that car, if only I had this size house, if only I had this possession, if only I made this, then, then my life would be satisfying, then I would be content, then life would be better. Comes from a heart of the love of money, of what love money can get us. Do you, do you see yourself as entitled to wealth that you didn't earn? God, this is owed to me. I should be paid this. Do you find yourself neglecting more important disciplines in order to earn more money? You spend a lot more time working hard in the office or on your investment accounts than you do thinking about your spiritual disciplines. Do you constantly find excuses for your lack of generosity? God, I don't have any money. I'm broke. I'll let someone else give to that. When somebody gives the announcements, I'm not really going to think about that. Are you consistently anxious and preoccupied about financial security of your future? The idea that money is going to bring to you what God cannot, or what you believe God cannot, some sense of security. Do you find yourself excessively going into debt? I need things now. I need to have the possessions now. I need to take all that I can. Here's a big one. Are you unwilling or unreceptive to get counsel on your finances? Or is that something that you actually welcome into your life? When's the last time you went to somebody you respected who has some wisdom with money, who's a godly man or woman, and says, can you look at my accounts and the way that I spend my money? When you look at this, would you say that this is, this is different? I'm spending my money as a Christian in a way that will benefit into eternity? And so the love of money, it creeps into our hearts. I know because I've seen those things in my own heart. And I'm sure you've seen them in yours. And so the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus, but many times we mock Jesus in a way when we trust in that money more than we trust in him. Verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. God knows what's really inside of you. You try to justify yourself before men, and I couldn't help but think sort of, what does the idea of justification have to do with money? Doctrine or belief of uh, justification in the Bible is the idea, how is someone made right with God? How is someone made right with God? And what does money have to do with that? I think a lot. I think a lot, and not because somehow the amount of money you have or the way you spend it ultimately determines whether you're right with God or not, but it will be evidence of what you truly believed and whether Jesus Christ was truly your master. That if you had turned from your sin and that once you were a slave to sin and you say, no, no longer like Paul says in Romans, and now I am a slave to righteousness and Christ and I serve him with absolutely everything I have and my words and my actions and the way that I use my money. Would it be obvious if someone looked at the accounts of your life that someone would say, the way the person uses their money, that they are a slave of Christ. That Christ is ultimately their master. And this might surprise you, and maybe some of you have read this in the scriptures and been perplexed, but when you look at the final judgment of when God judges everyone, it doesn't say something there 
about belief. And by the way, before you guys freak out, don't worry, we'll get to the end of this. Justification by faith, I certainly believe. But we have to wrestle with those passages. Marley, go on. I'll show you a few. Jesus speaking, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Another. Romans 2.6, Paul says, Look, God, he will render each one according to his work. And even to make it crystal clear in Revelation, John writes this. You can keep going. And I saw the dead, great and small. This is the end of everything. God's raising everyone who hasn't been judged yet from the dead, standing before the throne of God. And the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And so what gives? Are we saved by faith or are we saved by the things that we do? To even make it more complicated, somewhere in one of the Gospels, Jesus says, look, you'll be justified or condemned by your words. And you're like, well, which is it? Is it my, my beliefs? Is it my words? Is it my actions? Is it my money? The answer is yes, that it will be by your faith that you're only made right with God, that the only way to be made right with God is by trusting in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be forgiven of sin. But the things that you do will be the evidence of what you truly believed and why God doesn't need those things in order to know what's in your heart. I think one of the reasons is, is that when people are standing there at that judgment, there will be no one who will cry injustice at God's part. That it will be patently obvious exactly what everyone believed by the way that they live their life to us. And we will glorify God for his justice and his mercy in everything. And so, yes, you're justified by your faith. You're made right by God through your faith. But your faith that justifies you will never be alone. That's the point that James makes. There's always works by, by it. It will always produce actions in your life, including with your money, that will reflect what you have truly believed. So Jesus is saying, choose the right boss. Serve God. Your actions will be a vindication of what you truly believed. And so Jesus tells them, look, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You want to exalt money? You want to esteem what men have? You might have it for this life. You might have it good for this life, but it's an abomination to God. It's detestable, God, and you will receive judgment for that from God. And it's an abomination because of how much greater, how good is what God offers us in the gospel. Because essentially what God offers us above anything is himself. Everything that you seek for in riches, security, comfort, the procuring of satisfaction, a pleasure. God says, I have all of that infinity times. That's the beauty of God. Some people ask, why, why does God, why is he so much about his own glory? God, for lack of a better word, is sort of stuck being the most amazing person in the universe. And in fact, if God gave us anything less than reconciling us to himself through Jesus Christ, it would have been less loving. 
because we want is what is most satisfying. We want what is most beautiful. We want what is most pleasurable. We want what is most good. And God says, I am he. I am it. I'm the ultimate. And I offer myself to you. I want a relationship with you. I want to give you everything that money and everything I created was never intended or could give you. And so that's what Jesus, that's what we're offered through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins, the imputation of righteousness, the idea that, Jesus, that God would treat us like we live Jesus' perfect life as we place faith in him, that we're adopted into God's family. All of those things are beautiful, amazing truths, but they're means to an end. God wants us to be back with him. He wants us to have him and that's what he created us for. So don't exchange the glory of the eternal God for something like money. Choose the right boss. God's a gracious boss. He's a rich boss. He's a good boss. He's a generous boss. Serve him, love him. It may mean that there's hardship in this life, but you can guarantee that in the life to come, you will be rewarded, you will be thankful, you will live eternity with the best person, the best thing that you could ever have in God. I've got to wrap this up. But uh, there's another book, tail end of these with books, that I had been reading lately called Gospel Patrons. If you're somebody who this sermon is impacting you, you want to think more about how Christians giving throughout history has impacted people around the world. Pick up that book. But in this book, you hear familiar stories of people who maybe you've heard the names of. William Tyndale, who was the first, uh, one of the first men to translate the Bible into English because he wanted to have the common people have the word of God in their language and not have to rely on the popes and their false interpretations of whatever the, the Latin was. And he said, the time I'm done... The boy who uses a plow will know more about the Bible than the Pope will. And that was his hope. Maybe you've heard of George Whitfield, famous preacher, preached alongside John Wesley at times. He preached the gospel to nearly 10 million people in his lifetime in the Americas and in England. Whitfield preached 18,000 sermons. That's nearly 500 a year for 34 consecutive years that he preached the gospel. 500 sermons a year. Tens of thousands of people were saved through his ministry in the States and in England. And John Newton, he's the one who wrote Amazing Slave. He was an ex-slave trader. He became a preacher. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel in London to thousands. He wrote over 500 hymns. He mentored William Wilberforce, which is the one who eventually, who eventually was a preacher himself and ended the slave trade in England. And you hear about those men. You think, that's incredible. Man, I wish I could use my life in that way. And to be frank, me, other people, we're probably not going to be George Whitfield. Maybe not William Tyndale. I hope somebody is. That would be awesome. But history shows us that they are certainly exceptional men who lived their lives for Christ. But what you often don't hear about is the people who supported them. Humphrey Mammoth, a wealthy cloth merchant who supported Tyndale 
to make it possible so that he could translate in the Bible into English. He housed him and clothed him and paid his salary while Tyndale sat for years translating the Bible. Lady Huntington financially supported George Whitfield. She was married to a very wealthy man. She also was responsible for constructing nearly 116 church buildings and filling them with gospel preachers, supplying them with biblically sound pastors, and she started a, uh, supported a seminary that it would train faithful men to preach the gospel. John Thornton, British Merton and Christian, who became the wealthiest man in all of England during his time, who sponsored the ministry of John Newton. He supplied the money that published the hymn book that contained Amazing Grace. He established several churches and parishes. We may not remember men like that very often or think about them and how many of those men and women who gave money and even the people who gave a little bit from whatever they have towards the ministries of men like that. But heaven remembers. God knows. And those people will be rewarded for their faithful giving. John Newton wrote this to his, to John Thornton, his patron, his supporter on his deathbed. And I think it's so apt for us. He said, how worthless will money be found by those who overvalue it now, in the hour of death and in the day of judgment. The hour is coming when everything else will appear trifling and vain, but not so the knowledge and service of Jesus Christ. When it comes to your money, think about it in terms of eternity. Think about what will seem vain and trifling on your deathbed. And what will it be about your money that will last to eternity, that people will celebrate, that God will say good and well done, faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this parable. I pray for the Christians of this church, I pray for us as the church, that you would make us shrewd like the man in your story. That we're creative, that we spend exhaustive effort thinking about how we can use money to propel the gospel to the ends of the earth, to see people saved, to manage your resources to bless your people, Lord. Help us to rid ourselves of the idol of the love of money. Help us to repent where we need to, to see the value of your son, Jesus Christ, and ultimately to see your supreme worth, God, and that you are worth far more than money. You are worth far more than anything money will ever be able to procure us. Help us to see that clearly. Help us help those who have not come to know Jesus Christ to see that clearly, Lord, that they would ultimately cling to Christ and see his supreme worth and repent and fall on their knees and find a new master in Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.